0: If you have a Bible uh, or phone, turn to our Old Testament reading from Micah chapter 2. If you get to all the, the really thick prophets, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, go to the right. Well, And then if you're in the New Testament, uh, just head left. Um, if you're on your phones, you're on your own. You, uh, you may have noticed on the back table, these devotional guides for the season of Advent. These little booklets are designed to take you through the season of Advent in prayer and scripture reading twice a day, Uh, once in the morning on your own, and once at night with uh, family or friends. Look, especially if you're new to reading the Bible, uh, or even if you're just like me and kind of reading the Bible systematically is really difficult for you, um, uh, knowing where to where to go. Uh, if, if, if you struggle with just dipping into the Bible every now and again, this is a really great way to help you read the Bible in, in a more, um, uh, in a deeper, richer way. Uh, so take a copy for every person in your family, and then um, take a copy for a friend. Gina and I have already had friends of ours who are not Christians start to ask us, how does your family get ready for Christmas? Um, we can just Give them this guide. So be prepared when your friends ask you. Right, you'll notice that the guide is filled with a lot of artwork. And that a lot of it is not particularly Christmassy. So, uh, for example, here on the the first week of devotions, you've got this weird painting of the prophet Elisha over the dead Shunammite boy. That's not particularly Christmassy. You go to the next page and you have this locust-munching, wild man, John the Baptist, proclaiming that the axe is laid to the root of the trees. That's, that's not very Christmassy. And then, later on, you've got an angel blowing a trumpet on the day of judgment. What? It's like, what... What gives? Did the new guy misunderstand what he was supposed to do? Um, What are images like these doing in a devotional guide meant to prepare us for Christmas? Someone came by the office uh, just before these guides went to print and asked me what I was going to put on the cover. And I told them, I'm going to put this William Blake print about Jesus' terrifying parable of the ten foolish virgins in Matthew 25, a parable about his return to judge the living and the dead. And my visitor kind of got wide-eyed and um, clearly thought I had made a mistake. What does judgment have to do with Christmas? Well, as it turns out, everything. This morning is the first Sunday of Advent. Now, if you're new uh, to Christianity, or even if you're just new to to more liturgical ways, uh, more explicitly liturgical ways of being a Christian, then you may also be new to Advent. Um, Look, through the centuries, Christians have cultivated this remarkable way of telling the story of Jesus over the course of a year, through seasons and through days of fasting and feasting. And um, and by the way, I explain how the Christian year works in this Advent guide, so I'm not going to repeat myself here. What I do want to underline for you is that in all the Christian year, Advent is unique. And what distinguishes it, you see, is that it bears not one location in the Christian year, but two. Advent occupies two moments, two locations. It has two jobs. It stands on the one hand as the beginning of the Christian year the season of preparation for the first coming of Jesus, the nativity at Christmas. But it is also and equally the end of the Christian year, the season in which we prepare for the second coming of Jesus. What this means is that Advent prepares us for Christmas by putting us face to face with the last things, death, judgment, heaven, hell. Advent says that you'll never understand the need for the incarnation, for God to come and in Christ assume a human nature and live and die as one of us. You'll never understand that unless you grasp the reality of divine judgment. From a marketing standpoint, this is a lousy way to prepare for Christmas, Right? <laughs> As a matter of fact, this dual perspective on Advent, celebrating Christ's uh, first coming by first facing the reality of his second coming, this is utterly foreign to how the marketplace conditions us to approach Christmas. A couple of weeks ago, Gina and I were uh, in London for an academic conference. And we were out one evening on Regent Street, which is where Liberty of London are. It's all these really high-end shops. We were not there for the shopping, okay? But we were on Regent Street. And already, in the middle of November, they had put up some of the most stunning Christmas lights I'd ever seen. Huge angels looming down the length of Regent Street with wings and robes spanning multiple lanes of traffic. As people bustled down Regent Street, these enormous glittering creatures presided over their pilgrimages to some of London's highest-end stores. It was, in a way, it's a beautiful scene, but those angels were merely glittering images. Biblical images, yes, but only in the service of appetites, bridled by little more than a credit limit. Now, don't get me wrong, Advent doesn't call us to strip down the Christmas lights, but it does call us to see uh, those angels smoldering in their true biblical wattage, not merely as strings of glittering bulbs, but as retina-searing supernovas of holiness and glory. Advent trains us to see heavenly things and to respond appropriately. Advent doesn't pull the plug on the Christmas lights. You see, it it turns on the power. But it does so by giving us a fuller, more thoroughly biblical grasp of the God who, in the person of Jesus, assumes a human nature in the womb of an unwed teenage mom. Advent says that this gentle infant, meek and mild, is at the same time the king of glory, who will come again to judge the living and the dead. And Advent calls us to respond appropriately and tremble at the prospect. A century after the hymn we opened with, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, was written, a 13th century monk called Thomas of Chilano wrote an, another famous Advent hymn called Day of Wrath, Dies Irae. Christians have sung this for centuries to mark Advent. And here's how it begins. Day of wrath, O day of mourning. See fulfilled the prophet's warning. Heaven and earth in ashes burning. It really leaves you whistling the theme song. (laughs) 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 Medieval Christians had, uh, like many Christians around the world today do, they had more gravel in their gut than many of us do. They understood, medieval Christians like Thomas Chilano, understood full well that Advent brings fearsome tidings. The king comes to judge. And that reality, that the Holy One of Israel judges, is laid out on full display by the prophet Micah. Now, throughout Advent this year, we're going to be going through the book of Micah. Last week, we got a sneak peek in our Old Testament reading Uh, Of Micah chapter 1. And we saw that when God comes to judge. Mountains melt under him. Valleys split open. What is it that provokes this fury in God? Well you see like the prophet Isaiah. Micah. The bloke who wrote this book. Prophesied in Judah. That's the southern bit of Israel. Where Jerusalem lay. In the early 8th century B.C. He's a prophet. And that means he's pretty late on the scene of the Old Testament story. A lot has already happened by the time the prophets show up. A prophet's job is to speak an octave higher than anybody else. To pinpoint where Israel has departed from God. Micah was uh, fulfilling the job description. (laughs) Okay, He's shrill ornery, confrontational, adversarial. It's all the stuff that really wins you over to a preacher. (laughs) God commissioned Micah to deliver a specific message about a specific situation. And that was the message of God's impending judgment on the rampant economic injustices which had spread like gangrene in Israel. Now, before we look at those particular injustices, remember the story that the Bible has been telling. The economic practices that Micah uh, censures, that we're going to get to in a minute, they're despicable. But when you see them in the framework of the biblical story, you'll be able to see that they're not just villainous. They also reveal that Israel had rejected their God. Because they rejected two of his greatest gifts. Israel was the special people of this God who calls himself Yahweh. I am. This God, Yahweh, fashions the whole creation. And in it he set men and women to bear his image. To order creation according to his wise rule to his praise and glory. (laughs) But humanity falls into sin and death. And with it, all creation enters into bondage to decay and entropy. So God begins this rescue mission. He calls this guy Abraham, and he promises to bless all nations through Abraham's offspring. And then when Abraham's descendants, Israel, find themselves enslaved in Egypt, Yahweh brings them out. And for 40 years, he sustains them in the wilderness with bread from heaven and water from the rock. And then come two of Yahweh's greatest gifts to Israel. At Mount Sinai, Yahweh gives Israel his law, this precious gift that exposes sinfulness, restrains wickedness, and provides a window onto the heart of God. It reveals what he loves. And if that weren't enough, God then gives Israel the gift of a new land. A land flowing with milk and honey where they can manifest Yahweh's wise rule by living distinctively from the nations. I remind our kids ad nauseum. I don't care what your friends do. Our family is different. The family of Israel was to be different. To live distinctly. You shall be holy to me. For I, Yahweh, am holy. And have separated you from the peoples. That you should be mine. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 26. Now with those two gifts in mind. The law and the land. Look again at Micah chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2. Especially verse 2. And here, I want you to notice something. Notice the first two and the last two words of the second verse. They covet, and skip down, his inheritance. They covet his inheritance. This is the core of Micah's complaint. See, earlier in the Old Testament, God had appointed these warrior figures called judges to prevent Israel from abusing one another and the land which he had given them. But Israel forgot the meaning of holiness. They forgot, or rather they ignored the call to be Yahweh's distinctive people. They got used to their surroundings. They liked the way their neighbors did things. And they began morally and spiritually to rot. If Jesus were standing here talking to us, he would say, they lost their saltiness. You see, when God gave the promised land to Israel, he divided it among the tribes. Every tribe, except for the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe, was given its own land and the land given to each tribe was to be passed down from generation to generation as an ancestral birthright. That's what the word inheritance means in verse 2. The idea was that Israel would be a nation of free landholders with no place for indentured servitude or debt slavery or sharecropping. And to ensure this, God even institutes this radical measure known as the Jubilee, a year which came around every 50 years. It was the Sabbath of all Sabbaths. And on the year of the Jubilee, all lands which had been bought or sold defaulted back to the families to whom God had originally given them. God gave Israel the Jubilee to interrupt generational poverty and to remind Israel that they were not owners, but stewards of what he had given them. But Israel came to resemble her neighbors. The most elite spheres of Israelite society were peopled by these corrupt land barons who enriched themselves by forcing families off their ancestral land, pilfering the little bit of economic security that they had and reducing them to slavery. That's why God's judgment in verse 3 drips with irony. Behold, against this family, this would-be covenant family, I'm devising disaster. Just as the greedy land barons dream up evil at night and then violate God and neighbor in broad daylight, so God devises disaster against them. Since Israel gorged herself on vicious economic practices, denying the terms on which God had given them the land, And so consciously rejecting his law, God was going to inflict on Israel the utter opposite of the Jubilee. He's going to sentence them, his faithless people, to exile. What's startling is that the greedy land barons don't even seem to grasp the meaning of their exile. If you look at verse 4, Micah's words, once again, are dripping with irony. He's mocking them, those greedy land barons, those corrupt oppressors. He's imagining what these greedy land barons will say when God snatches away the land that they forfeited in their sin. And it sounds so pious, doesn't it? We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. He changes the portion. How he removes it from me. Haven't you removed it? To an apostate, he allots our fields. In other words, Micah is pointing ahead into the future the dreaded Assyrian conquerors who are going to sack Samaria in 722 B.C. And he's saying, you think they're the apostates? You think they're the backsliders? See, there's a subtle warning here. Did did you know that each and every one of you was born with a superpower? It's true. All of us enter the world with this innate ability to convince ourselves that we are the last people in the world who need to be judged. Somebody needs sorting out. The person sitting beside you needs a talking to. Just not me, if you don't mind. Of course, we don't say it so plainly, right? But think about it this way. We love to have nearly every virtue practiced on us. We want to be treated virtuously almost all the time. We want our guests to practice temperance when they eat our food and drink our wine. We want friends to practice chastity toward us and especially toward our children. We want our children to practice prudence in the friends that they choose. We want strangers to show courage In our classroom or at work or wherever, when for whatever reason we are seen as undesirable people to befriend. But justice is the last virtue I want someone to practice on me. (laughs) But the Bible is clear it is those who seek to avoid judgment upon whom judgment falls the hardest. But when instead of evading justice, we learn to desire God's judgment. Not as judgment of somebody else, people over there across the room, sitting beside you or behind you. But judgment of you, of me. Then we are brought through the whirlwind of his wrath. Straight to the heart of Jesus. Where we discover that the one who comes to be our judge comes not to condemn us, but to save us. Notice that we get a glimpse in verse 5 of two different futures for God's people. There are two ways out of this calamity that God is bringing upon Israel. And the only difference between the two outcomes, the two groups, is how people relate to the judgment of God. On the one hand, we have those greedy land barons. Through Micah, Yahweh declares these victimizers guilty. And the penalty, as I've already said, is physical exile. And in 722 BC, that sentence was partially executed. Assyrian troops march on Samaria and lead the northern tribes of Israel away into exile. But the curse of physical exile was only a shadow of the greater judgment that Yahweh was executing upon Israel. Because with the loss of the covenant land comes the loss of the covenant relationship, which is to say the loss of eternal life. One of the two futures envisioned here is nothing short of death and hell. And if this doesn't terrify you, you're not awake. This should terrify you. When Yahweh promises in verse 5 that you greedy land barons will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of Yahweh. What he's saying is that those who have violated his covenant, those who have introduced among his people this extreme disparity between wealth and poverty, they are forever excluded from the covenant people of God. This is a fearsome judgment. God lays eternal death on those who willfully reject him. And yet, this is only half the story. This is only one of the two futures we glimpse. Because embedded in this terrible judgment is a second future. A promise implied in what the judgment assumes. One day, the assembly of Yahweh, the people of God, will be regathered. And the renewed people of God will be given a share in the salvation Yahweh achieves. This is fearful news then, but it is also good news. God promises that he will not forget his covenant people in exile. One day he's going to gather them up. He will restore them to the promised land of rest. He will again cast the line, restoring to all Israel Their true inheritance. Verse 12 brings this out loud and clear. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. But how will God save the remnant? Please don't miss this. This is so important. First, God is going to establish his reign in the midst of his enemies. That's the promise of verse 12. Micah is envisioning Jerusalem besieged. And within it, the faithful remnant of Israel, protected from their enemies by their shepherd king. God is not only going to establish his reign among his people. He's going to establish his reign in the midst of his people's enemies. That's the promise of verse 12. But there is a second and even more remarkable promise in verse 13. Having established his reign in hostile territory, the shepherd king of Israel now invades the world. He sends out his people as his emissaries. The kingdom of God is breaking into the world. But what's really striking about this incursion is that it happens through the weakness of his faithful people. Micah envisions a day when Israel, having been kept safe by Yahweh, within Jerusalem, is led out. But as we know, if we carry on reading the story of the Old Testament, when Israel is finally led out of Jerusalem, it's not in triumph. No, eventually, Israel leaves Jerusalem in chains. In bondage, the remnant too suffers exile. The faithful with the faithless, When Jerusalem finally fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. This is Advent imagery here. In the final two verses of our reading. It is just As God's people languish in darkness, that they follow their king. The arrogant are brought low, but those who are bent and broken go out in strength despite their exile. Because the Lord is at their head. If you're a Christian, you should take comfort from this. If you're languishing, the shepherd king goes before you. So Advent brings fearsome tidings. The king comes to judge. And yet these fearsome tidings are also glad tidings. Because in Jesus Christ, the judge came to live and die as one of us. And now, the king bears in his own glorified body the wounds which he was made man to bear. And those wounds... Say one thing loud and clear. Jesus Christ is far more interested in what he can do with your weakness than in what he can do with your strength. Let's pray.